Welcome EAE podcast listeners. I'm Laura Rumbly, Associate Director for Knowledge Development and Research at the EAE, and this is episode number 33 in our series. I'm so glad you're tuning in. We're publishing this installment of the EAE podcast in December 2021. And in looking at the calendar, I'm reminded that reaching the end of a year always puts me in a reflective frame of mind. As might be the case with many of you, I find myself thinking a lot about what's transpired over the last year and what lies ahead. Writing a memoir takes the activity of self-reflection to a whole new level of detail and sophistication, and that's precisely what our guest today has recently done. Rajika Bandari came on my radar some 15 years ago when she joined the research team of the U.S.-based Institute of International Education, or IIE. Among her many senior-level responsibilities at that very prominent international organization, Rajika played a key role in the production of research and data on international student mobility, both specifically in relation to the United States and in a broader global context. As we all know, though, there are always fascinating personal stories behind every impersonal data set. Through her recently published memoir, America Calling, Rajika tells a story of international student mobility, immigration, and personal and professional challenge and opportunity. She's hopeful that the lessons she's derived in reflecting on a life in international education can offer insights into why the human experience at the heart of the internationalization enterprise matters so very much. Rajika, you and I have been friends for a good number of years now, and it's so delightful to have an opportunity to chat with you about some of the things that you're working on at the moment or have recently completed, one of which, of course, is this marvelous book that you've authored, America Calling. And as I was reflecting on our conversation, I was thinking about the fact that you've been a researcher of international student trends and written extensively about them professionally, but this book is very different as a memoir. Can you tell me a little bit about why this book and why particularly now did it speak to you to write something like this? So it's wonderful to be here with you today, Laura. And uh, you're right that it's a very different book. And um, as, as you know, and as some of your listeners might know from my background, I've spent many, many years tracking the numbers of uh, international students, certainly coming into the U.S., but also those who move around globally for an education. And the realization that I arrived at after some years was that we have a lot of statistics and we have good data out there. But where I really found a gap was that the stories of international students are not really known. And the stories and the value of international students is not appreciated outside our sector. And so I found it quite baffling that for people like you and me, it's very easy to reel off those numbers of uh, how, what international students contribute to different countries and the economies. But if you were to ask, for example, the average American on the street, they would not have a clue or have a sense of uh, why having international students in the US and on American campuses on other countries' campuses is so critical. So I found a huge gap there and I felt that the story needed to be told and told in all of its nuance. And even within our sector, I was finding that that pathway between, first off, the, the, what that experience really looks like is not well understood. 
And secondly, that link, that critical link between higher education and skilled immigration and building for countries to build their talent pool was really not understood again with with a human face to it. So that was the main motivation behind the book. And then when in the U.S. Trump was elected and uh, there was uh, increasing nationalism, not just in the U.S., but really globally, we've seen this wave of nationalism of countries becoming more insular, particularly countries who have traditionally um, welcomed people from all over the world, it became very clear to me that the it was even more urgent for the story to be told. And as someone who had walked that path, been an international student, become an immigrant, seeing what was happening around the travel bans and this increasing hostility towards um, anybody who was viewed as an outsider, even international students, I felt very compelled to write the book. So that was sort of the the, the final motivation uh, for it and in terms of why now. And of course, uh, as far as the U.S. is concerned, there's a sense that we've turned a corner with the new administration. But even so, there's a lot to be done in terms of policy in, in, in uh, really repairing the damage of the previous administration and really turning things around. Absolutely. Um, You've mentioned, you know, this very particular context of the United States. And of course, you know, your country of birth is India. So this book really toggles between those two realities, principally. Do you think that the the story that you have to tell has resonance in other contexts as well? How, How universal is this story in a sense? It is a very universal story, and it's interesting you um, you use the the word universal because actually um, uh, Andy Hamilton, who's the president of NYU, in talking about the book, has indeed said exactly that that this is this is a very universal narrative, and it's universal because. I think that it has great relevance for all countries that are hoping and who do attract international students in large numbers, particularly the more traditional host countries, the Anglophone countries, many other non-Anglophone European countries, but countries that have had a history of attracting students, attracting scholars from other countries, and for whom that flow has really been a critical way of not only building their own economy, and talent pools, um, but also in really forging um, long-term ties with the countries that students come from. So I think the message of the book is absolutely relevant, and I would say relevant even more so for wealthy countries like the US, like the UK, like Australia, uh, many European countries um, for sure, because the book also raises some really important questions about what are some larger considerations when we look at this give and take of students, of the countries who receive them? Do they have an obligation towards um, sending countries in terms of brain drain? How much does brain drain continue to be an issue? What are the challenges that new immigrants face? So so I think these are very universal stories. And and in, in the case of My story and what I narrate in the book is that even though the focus of the book is the U.S., what I'm really tapping into is this um, larger sense of aspiration that students from all over hold. In my case, it was from India, but certainly students from all over the world who are globally mobile. And even in the case of India, and this is a story I tell in the book, 
historically, it was always the UK. And students looked to the UK. And that was, of course, because of India's colonial history and its uh, long relationship uh, with, with, uh, with Britain. But over time, some of that focus shifted and the US became the prime destination. But really, it, I, I think that the relevance is uh, for all students from all countries and also for all receiving countries, not just the US. So the the details that you mentioned here, all these different layers have always fascinated me about our field. So there are uh, levels of analysis or actors at these various levels, individual students making individual choices, higher education institutions finding their way, countries trying to navigate strategies or initiatives that relate to international education. And one of the various topics that I know you've touched upon in your research and professional writing is, in fact, diplomacy and international education, the, the national level of action. I wonder for you, what is it about that intersection between those two phenomena that speaks to you? And what's your perception right now for the potential for international education to be a driver of global dialogue at that sort of big national level? So when I began to really research the phenomenon of uh, international student flows um, globally and, and to the US, I've of course been a scholar of current trends, but going back historically was very, very revealing for me and really tracing it back to, you know, who is that first documented international student to appear in the records. And eventually, I won't go, it, go into detail in it here, but it's certainly in my book, tracing it back to Jung Wing, who was a student from China and uh, coincidentally, whose uh, grave is actually right here in Connecticut, not very far from me. So. Delving into the history really revealed to me how critical universities in countries like the US um, and other key destination countries have really been that catalyst for countries to build ties with the rest of the world. And this happens in two ways. I mean, I think there's formal diplomacy and that's been reflected in, you know, since the 1940s, since the launch of the Fulbright program here in the US. And certainly many of the large scholarship schemes um, see like Erasmus and, and others all around the world, where a key idea behind those is that it's really helping forge those ties between the host country and, um, and, other, uh, and other countries around the world. So I think there's that idea of formal diplomacy that people will come from other countries, they will be educated in our universities, they're going to take those ideas back. And I think governments have understood that over a period of time and really fostered that. And that exchange and mobility has actually been something that at a person-to-person -person exchange level has really allowed Allowed those relationships to continue. So I think international education is absolutely a very powerful tool of influence and diplomacy. The other way I think in which it's tied to diplomacy again is sort of what I mentioned a second ago, the person-to-person -person people diplomacy. And that's the other piece that I discovered in writing my book, in interviewing people, and I have conducted several interviews for the book, that each 
international student in any country, at any university, in the smallest of universities, is really an unofficial ambassador for that institution, whether they remain in that country or whether they go back home, and even more so when they go back home, which is why we see this phenomenon sometimes where it'll be a very small institution, but they suddenly have a large number of students from a particular country. And the reason is that that one student went back home and shared with their community and their society, their experience, and inspired others to come study. And in fact, in the book, I refer to to these sorts of individuals as unofficial ambassadors. And what I will share is many of your listeners will be familiar with the Open Doors Report, which I led for many years here in the US. The original title of Open Doors was Unofficial Ambassadors. So, you know, that link to diplomacy is um, very, very strong. And in terms of where we sit now, Absolutely. I think that international education and everything that people like you and I are doing in our fields is critical in um, fostering those ties. And it's not just about students. It's, uh, you know, among scholars, amongst academics, amongst the nonprofit sector. And it's really something that's going to help us come out of this much darker phase that we have seen in recent years of being uh, very insular. I didn't know that about the unofficial ambassador's title of the Open Doors Report. That's a really nice piece of historical information for me, as well as the idea of being able to identify the first, in a sense, international student in the United States that gives um, you know, a face to data, which I think is so, so important. Having said that, data are also extremely important. We know that they can be powerful tools and arguments um, for telling a story, you know, about the value of, of a phenomenon. There's certainly, I think, many of, among many of us, a sense that there's an urgency to advocate for international education today for political reasons, for um, the challenges we're facing with the pandemic, et cetera. And data has been a big part of your professional life, of course. I wonder if you might be able to identify some of the primary challenges and opportunities you see at this moment in time when it comes to data-driven decision-making and advocacy. Um, And I ask this because I I know we're seeing pushback on credibility of scientific evidence or desire and ability to believe in that. And kind of in that spirit, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are about the challenges and opportunities then in, in that space. Yeah, sure. I think that's a great question. So let me let me talk first about some of the challenges that I see. I think data has gained importance in a way that we've not not seen before, which is a great thing. But at the same time, I think very often we're not asking the question, what is the purpose of that data? Why? Who is gathering it? How is it being gathered? So Really, and, and if you're a researcher, you know that those are issues of reliability and validity, right? That what is that data really telling us? And most importantly, are we asking the right questions? So in the past few years, I have seen a huge proliferation. I mean, it seems like everybody's doing a student survey. Everybody's doing an international student survey, other surveys, surveys of institutions. Our field is, you know, replete with different surveys. But I think we really have to take a step back and ask the question uh, or be more discerning about uh, what is that data really telling us. And then in that sense, I would say that one of the most critical skills our sector has to acquire is for each one 
one of us to develop data literacy. So it's not just about the expert researchers doing the research, but for each one of us to be better consumers of that information as we leverage it to drive our strategy and indeed to advocate. So that's one thing I'll say. The other piece is, I think, in this whole drive towards what are the metrics, what are the numbers, we've forgotten the value of storytelling. And that's indeed where a lot of my work has been taking me in the past few years, where it's, um, you know, it's interesting that I've been I've been immersed a lot in sort of more of the quantitative side of things for many years. But I'm really emphasizing a lot of storytelling now in my work and um, qualitative information and how that needs to be married with the quantitative. In terms of the opportunities, um, I'll quickly say that I think we all have to be thinking about impact. Again, this ties back to the issue of quick metrics. I think there's a tendency to focus on how many students, who's going where, et cetera, how many scholars, and, and sort of just those very bare bones um, numbers. And almost as if it were like a stock market, the numbers are up, the numbers are down. <laughs> but we are not focusing on the quality and the bigger questions, which tie back to lo- examining our own impact. So I think that's an area in which our field certainly needs to make more inroads in um, assessing and evaluating our, the impact of our various efforts and uh, interventions. So that's where I sort of see, see the big opportunity. And I, I know that you, by impact, I think you mean a whole slew of different ways of understanding impact. But what jumps to mind for me is this idea of belonging, you know, which seems to be so big these days. That's one element, I think, of the international student experience that forever has been tugging at my consciousness. You know, this idea that numbers are one thing, but what is the actual quality of the experience and the, the sense of, of really having been um, welcomed into a new environment in a particular way. But I think we could talk about that for days in in another context. But it it does bring me back, though, to your particular story. I wanted to loop back to your autobiography. I was intrigued by the fact that you refer to yourself as an accidental immigrant, and that initially you were strongly against moving to the U.S. because, and I think we quote here from your book, those who left never return. And I think that's a really powerful idea idea for us to think about. Ultimately, right now, I'm wondering, what is your sense now? How do you perceive of these notions of leaving and returning? How have those ideas evolved for you over time? And what does the immigrant experience imply for you today? So one of the parts of the book is, and as you've alluded to it, I really describe in great detail what that journey is like from being a student to becoming an immigrant. And and I want to sort of also preface this by saying that not every student becomes an immigrant. And we know that, right? Many go back to their home countries. Many move on to to third countries. um, And it's that whole circular flow of, of knowledge and experience. But the reality is, at least for the U.S., Higher education is a very clear pathway to skilled immigrant uh, immigration uh, for the U.S. It has been and it continues to be post-1960s. And it was very much the pathway for me. And I found that that story of the challenges had really not been told. So I do describe that in great detail. I describe both 
the very significant immigration challenges, which have not, to be honest, changed over time. And I heard that from student after student whom I interviewed for my book. But I also share in great detail the emotional journey of that turning point when you actually decide that your new home lies elsewhere. And it's a new home in the sense of uh, what is legally your new home, where are you living and working, but it is not the home of the heart. The home of the heart will always be your original home. And what I say in the book, and I still believe is that that experience of having become an immigrant emotionally does not become necessarily become easier as time passes. So I think the idea of what is your home now and where do you belong versus that sense of original belonging never really goes away. And in the book, and I, I say in the book that it's sort of a cross that immigrants have to have to bear over time. And it's just something we learn to live with and learn to find the positives in. And so in terms of how things feel now, I think for most immigrants, including for me, um, well, one of the advantages is that today we're living in a world where thanks to technology and certainly in the past year, year and a, uh, and a, and a half because of the pandemic, we, we've, we're connected as never before. So I think immigrants have found a way to... Um, I don't want to say give back, just give back, because that sounds a little patronizing, but let's say remain connected and collaborate with their home countries in different ways. So through my work, I'm partnering with colleagues in India at Indian universities. I'm, I'm um, working with students in India, with other nonprofits. And I think uh, we're all finding ways, and we see that even in the rest of our international education sector amongst many foreign-born faculty in different countries, that they're finding ways to collaborate with their peers in their home countries. So I think immigrants find that way to remain connected, and certainly with technology, the ease of movement, not, notwithstanding the pandemic, but I'm talking about the phase prior to that, where air travel is certainly more accessible than it was decades ago things have been easier and that possibility of remaining connected is uh, is more real. Rajika, our very first podcast episode in this series a year and a half ago was called The Stories We Tell. And as we reach the end here of 2021, it is really such an honor to be able to chat with you about your story and to thank you so much for sharing these very personal and powerful and um, relatable experiences about a life in international education. It's really been a delight. Thank you so much, Laura. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you for having me on. That was Rajika Bandari, an international higher education expert and a scholar practitioner, born in India, based in the United States, and author of a new memoir on a life framed by international education, mobility, adaptation, and reflection. Our session notes contain links to information about Rajika's work if you'd like to learn more about her perspectives and insights. As you reflect on what 2021 has meant to you, we hope that the EIE stands out as a reference point for outstanding information, stimulation, and connection. And of course, from reflection, we move toward new action. 2022 awaits. As you prepare for the new year, be aware that now is the ideal moment to lock in your EA membership to ensure you have year-round access to all the benefits that come with being part of the EAE community. 
As an EIE member, you'll have exclusive opportunities to connect with your peers and colleagues via the EIE mentorship program and other networking opportunities. You'll also benefit from significant discounts on events such as our Online Academy Spring Training Program and the EIE Community Summit, all taking place in the early months of 2022. If you have more colleagues who could benefit from EIE membership, please also take a look at our group membership packs that are available for a short time. The EAE website has all the details. Visit www.eaae.org and click on Join Us. The EAE podcast takes a holiday break, but we look forward to releasing new episodes in the second half of January. For now, may you enjoy a healthy and restful holiday period, and we look forward to connecting with you again in the new year. All good wishes to you from the EAE.